about to Tudor Talk time. We hope you had a really good week. And yeah, so this week we're going to be looking at Christina of Denmark. So Christina of Denmark, a figure, an interesting woman. And I think we often refer to her, as we will come to later, I'm sure, but... By one thing, but a woman who had many things going for her. Isn't that... Some would argue. The, the, she was born in 1522 in Denmark. And her father was King Christian II of Denmark and Norway. And I actually wanted to touch on this for a minute, get your opinion. What do we think of naming your child the alternate gender version of your name? Christian and Christina? No, I think it's a little wi- Do you know what? The thing for me is that, like, I kind of get, like, you get a lot of, like, in France, get the Louis with the son Louis with the son mm. Louis with the son Louis. But the fact that she's the second daughter, I the know. first one was called Dorothea. I do find that kind of funny. Imagine if Henry VIII had Henrietta. Or, oh, that's so true. Um, who's another? Person? I mean, they definitely named... Oh, Edward wait, no. had an Edwina. <laughs> and Isabella of Austria was her mother. Let's um, not forget the mothers here. Yeah, because her, her like heritage, I guess, through her mother plays quite an important role in her mm-hmm. life, actually. Isabella of Austria was the third child of Philip of Burgundy and Joanna or Juana of Castile, who we have an episode on. Mm-hmm. And just in case you haven't listened to it and you don't know who she is, she's basically the older sister of Catherine of Aragon. So she's very important and has... It just gives Christina a lot of connections, I guess, through to royal families throughout Europe. And this will become very important later in her story. She is also the niece of the Holy Roman Emperor, who is at this time Charles V, which again will just become important later to be related to someone very powerful. So in January 1523, the Danish nobles rebelled against her father and replaced him with her uncle. And so her family, well, her immediate family, so her father, mother and two siblings were forced to flee Denmark in April to the Netherlands, where they lived with her great-aunt and aunt. And her great-aunt was Margaret of Austria, and she really is a bit of a powerhouse of a woman. But she dies in 1530, as loads of people do die, I mean. (laughs) So throughout her childhood, she did lose quite... I mean, she had a bit of a chaotic childhood obviously age two she had to flee the country she was born in and in 1526 her mother died and then in 1532 her father was imprisoned for trying to reclaim his throne and basically take take that all back so she's essentially left parentless her primary caregiver really becomes her aunt mary who again this connection to charles v she is the sister of charles v so I think it's quite easy to go. She was, he was her uncle, etc., etc. But it doesn't technically mean anything in these times because families were huge. And but he's a busy boy. He's a busy man. He's a busy boy. But he, she is grown up with somebody that is obviously very, very fond of Charles V, mm. and that is going to be very yeah. ingrained within her. Yeah, and her aunt Mary was also the regent of the Netherlands, so she definitely has quite a lot of powerful women in her life her aunt basically oversaw her growing up she made sure she had a very good education 
of like a high quality for the status that Christina did have because despite the lot like despite her mother being dead mm-hmm. and her father kind of being disgraced she's still a very very important she still holds like a lot of power I guess isn't obviously not actual power but she's still an important figure on the world stage yeah. I guess is that fair to say I think so Growing up, she was described as a great beauty, intelligent, lively, and said that she enjoyed hunting and riding. But like many medieval women, her childhood was punctuated by marriage. And at age 12, she married Francesco II, Duke of Milan. Now, I'm not a big fan of child marriage, but... Really? Yeah, I mean, really surprisingly... But before she was married to the Duke of Milan, it was suggested that by England that she marry Henry Fitzroy, the illegitimate son of Henry VIII. But Charles, as Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain, and her being his niece and therefore a member of the imperial household, and basically a kind of a hot commodity, he was like, she's not marrying someone who was, who's illegitimate, no. born out of wedlock, we're better than that, ew, not a bastard. I feel like I should also mention, just sucking back to the child marriage, child marriage thing, that the Duke of Milan was 40 years of age. Yeah. So it wasn't like a cute 12-year-olds marrying 12-year-olds. Yeah. It was, you know. 12-year-old marries you really are, old man. Yeah. Who is dying, but we will get onto that in a second. He, the Duke of Milan in 1531 offered his hand in marriage to either sister. And Charles said that he couldn't have the older sister. <laughs> Because that would be wrong. No. He could have 12-year-old Christina of Denmark. And so, yeah, they were married in Brussels by proxy two years later. The marriage contract itself had a couple of terms. So one of them was that if Francesco died without an heir, the Duchy of Milan would become part of the Holy Roman Empire, which was obviously in the interest of Charles. So you can see his influence in this. And also that if Christina became a widow, she would retain her rights for the city of Tortona for the rest of her life. So when she married Francesco, he would be the last Schwarzer to rule Milan, which is quite an important thing in Italian history, especially for the area and the time. As we said, he was basically 30 years older than her, which is quite gross. But he was kind of dying anyway, and no one really expected them to have children together, as he basically hadn't recovered from a poisoning attempt. However, their relationship was reportedly a good one, and they were fond of each other, probably in the way that a father and daughter are fond of each Mm. other. But anyway. I wonder if giving the younger of the sisters was maybe a, a play by Charles, because maybe she is less likely to give him an heir than the elder sister maybe and it means that it's a bit more secure that he is going to get milan because milan is a a powerful place it's a a good place to have under your belt yeah i wouldn't be surprised as well because i mean they kind of all expected him to die relatively Mm. soon they didn't think he was going to live much longer and so it would make sense i guess to keep the older sister like yeah. not intact but do you know what I mean is and she's very soon going to obviously be a widow but before that happens 
she seemed to really like Milan by all reports and the people of Milan really liked her and one of her ladies in waiting there Francesco Paliolo <laughs> Francesco of Monferrat would become a lifelong friend of hers so it's a very important area and I think she probably she appeared to be quite fond of it because even after he died she wanted to stay in Milan and Charles did allow her to stay in Milan well you- in 1535 Francesco Francesco he dies sickly man sorry about the poisoning you got him eventually yeah I so I guess congratulations to whoever launched that attempt because slow it, and steady won the race it did eventually get him they might have thought they yeah. were unsuccessful but they won in the end so i hope i wonder if they got executed for that actually but if they didn't i bet they were jumping for joy <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. yes <laughs> but either way at age 13 she was widowed more accomplished than i was at age 13 if we would consider, consider... To be fair, I hadn't been Duchess of Milan when I was 13. So, round of applause to her. But yeah, she's really at 13. It's kind of reminiscent of Margaret Beaufort. Very. Except she doesn't have a child. So yes. she's a little she's a little better off. And as per the agreement, Milan is incorporated, incorporated into the Holy Roman Empire. She moved to Brussels. Quite nice. Um, yeah, not too shabby. Yeah. I mean, she did stay in... Milan for a little bit. Yeah. And she but, did yeah. gain the title of Lady of Tortona as well. Which she would ha- keep for life. Yeah. Um, On the way to Brussels, she visited her sister, Dorothea, in Innsbruck. Ooh. Very nice. I like the name Dorothea. For I love the name Dorothea. Dorothea. I was being modest, but I, I really like it. So, yeah, she went. So, when she came, moved back to Brussels, she went to go stay with her aunt, who was. Mary, who we talked about earlier, who was the governor of the Low Countries. And Christina was a favourite of Mary. She really, really liked her little niece, so she went to stay with her for a little bit. And then after the death of Jane Seymour, this is kind of hopping around a little bit, but after the death of Jane Seymour in 1537, with Christina back on the marriage market, she was considered, and Hans Holbein was commissioned to paint portraits of all all the noble women who were eligible to become the English Queen and she was high up that list. Mm-hmm. And on March 12, 1538, Christina, who was 16 years old, sat for a portrait by Hans Holbein the Younger and it's reported that she was seated for this. He What he would do is he would just take loads and loads of sketches of her from all angles and then he would go away and he would do the portrait but she sat from 1pm to 4pm for him and the portrait he produces is a full face it's actually a a full body which there's this quote well it's not a direct quote it's a feebified quote from henry the first of england where he pretty much goes you need to have a full body one so that you can know what their their body looks like know if they're fit for Mm, child bearing mm, hips we love a bit of objectification yes so this was believed it gave the most honest depiction of a bride of of a woman that you were thinking of a bride and when henry saw it he fell in love with it classic henry which i've seen this portrait i've looked at it i looked at it so much in preparing for this episode and i will say you know she looks lovely but you don't see that much of her 
Because she's wearing, she's, she's in all black. Apart from, she's reportedly had very dainty hands, and so her hands are really drawn attention to. Mm. But Henry VIII, after seeing this, was supposedly in better humour than he ever was. Yeah, some, some I mean, she was quotes. still in her mourning attire. Mm. She wore pretty much only black for the portrait. And so maybe he was like, that's the woman who will mourn me. Yeah. He's quite an egotistical man, Henry. <laughs> anyway, Henry sees the painting. As Phoebe said, he's like, that's a bit of me. But I think we already touched on Christina's pretty direct relationship with his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, who the treatment wasn't great. So I know he said Christina was a beauty in childhood, but she wasn't regarded like that when she gets older. The portrait itself was described as perfect, but she was described as very pure, fair of colour she is not, but marvellous good brownish face she hath, with fair red lips and ruddy cheeks. Probably from spending so much time in that good old Italian sun without any yeah, SPF. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's still swept him off his feet. And in the portrait, she has a sort of faint smile on and it's it's modest and very gentle which i think in in my opinion i think a big part of it was that smile that he would have seen similarities between her and jane seymour just with her expression that it's quite oh, you know what she is she is somewhat reminiscent of jane yeah janie janie but it also has a sort of seductive but henry just falls in love with her and but is the feeling mutual? Well, I would argue no, because she supposedly said, quote, if I had two heads, one should be at the King of England's disposal, which is an obvious reference to how he beheaded Anne Boleyn. And to be honest, he did go and behead another wife, but he hadn't done that yet. So smart move on her part. Yeah. And kind of like even more iconic, I guess, for that. But basically, she's clearly not that keen because... Once again, her great aunt was Catherine of Aragon, who he did not treat well, and she was like, mm, that's going to be a no from me. Interestingly, I think as well that the other kind of top two options, I guess, at this time were another great niece, Margaret, who was also a great niece of Catherine of Aragon, who also was like, mm, he's not going to treat me well, so I'm going to pass up on that. And this is really why we are saying that relationship with Mary and Charles V is just so important. Because she's not going to consider getting into that relationship. And, and I, I don't think that Charles would let anybody close to him. Because Charles and, and Catherine of Aragon did have a close They're relationship. They wrote, they wrote to each other a lot. And so Charles is like, absolutely not too much love for Auntie Catherine. I have another quote, which I just think, you know, somebody needed to say it. Thomas Ridesley. I love uh, this quote. So he was an English diplomat in Brussels. And when they were talking about this marriage, he actually said to Thomas Cromwell that Henry should fix this most noble stomach in some such other place. He basically called him an ugly fight. He said, he basically said, staple that stomach, then we'll talk about a marriage. Yeah, he was like, you have too much stomach to... To have a gouty leg as well. Nice to know that fat shaming has I been know. going on. I don't love the fat shaming. Well, I don't love the fat shaming, but it's interesting because, like, 
fat being, being, yeah, being a well, I being fat used to be a sign of wealth, but I think he was too fat that it was like giving alcoholic old fat man. I think they wanted their men to be a little bit like Athletic. fit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they liked like broad fat. And this mm. man, Henry VIII, but he just had like a big old belly. He was hardly walking around. By he was yeah. hobbling. He smelled. He was huge, and you know, no hate for him for being huge. However. Don't be so greedy that you get gout. Yeah, that is, it, it's quite frankly, I you would don't. say it's very privileged and misunderstanding of him to be fat and gouty. And don't kill <laughs> your wives. Yeah, that's also really rude. He pursued her for two years before giving up, but also Mary of Hungary had also objected to this marriage and he was forced to abandon it. But she also, this wasn't like the first marriage proposal that she'd had. As soon as she became a widow, she had a lot of suitors. So her first proposed suitor was Louis of Piedmont, who was the heir to the throne of Savoy, but he died before the marriage could actually take place. It was also suggested by Pope Paul II that she should marry her foster son, who was the gr- also at the same time the great nephew of the Pope, which obviously just didn't happen because that's really weird. And yeah. then a French husband was also suggested, but he only wanted the marriage so that he could get a claim to the... Duchy of Milan, so this obviously didn't happen again because Charles wouldn't allow that. Basically wouldn't allow her to kind of be used, but then also fully used her, so that's an interesting thing. But from kind of 1539 to 40, Christina, luckily, I guess, but also not luckily, found herself in love with René of Chalon, Prince of Orange, and they courted each other and it was clear that they both reciprocated their feelings and her sister and her sister's husband supported Christina's desire for a love match as her second marriage. Also, not a terrible match. Isn't it's not like below station or whatever. You yeah, know? Because he used to play when they were young with her brother John, so she knew him from then. It's kind of cute. They're like childhood sweethearts, anyway. But that was quickly squashed. But when Regent Aunt Mary condoned the courtship unofficially, that she didn't, she basically kind of didn't tell them that they had to stop, and she didn't tell them that they could carry on, basically, because she was waiting for Charles to say whether he needed, essentially, needed Christina for a political marriage before Mary would allow her to enter a love match. And in October of 1540, Charles did end this love match by forcing Renee of Orange to marry Anne of Lorraine and then decided that Christina would also marry into Lorraine and marry Anne's brother, Francis of Lorraine, to strengthen the alliance, essentially, between Lorraine and the Holy Roman Empire because, you know, two, two marriages... Big strength in the relationships. So she becomes the Duchess Consort of Lorraine, and it's said that they had a pretty happy marriage, the two of them. She had three children, the first, a son in 1543, and then two daughters later, which she named after her sister Dorothea. One thing I was going to say is the other daughter is called Renee, and oh, that's I find that... <gasps> oh. I find it really sweet. How did he allow that? But then at the As same time, yeah, that's my thing. That. Is like, imagine she's like, I have a really great idea for the, to name this baby. It, it, I'd, did, I'd rather be married. Yeah, to. where did that name come from? Maybe it's because he died. She didn't like remembrance. Maybe, maybe. 
there's t maybe she's not actually ever mourning him, but she's mourning the loss of not being able to marry Rene. Mm. So Rene died in 1544 during the siege of Saint Dizier, and a year later Francis died as well. Christina is left as regent of Lorraine because her son is, is still a, a minor. But following the French invasion of this statue, she actually has to resign. But seven years later, to be fair, so she did keep up for a while, but she flees to the Netherlands after this. Which is what some would argue, her safe place, because she seems to flee there, but yeah. you know, second time fleeing there. I mean, at one occasion during their marriage, Christina did refer to herself as the happiest woman in the world. So I guess it can't That's have been really all too bad. But in 1560, she returns to Lorraine, which was like officially ruled by her son, who was Charles III. So she does still have a hand in the politics and is involved mm. with her son's Well, I mean, even, even during exile, she receives marriage proposals from lots of very important men in Europe, such as King Henry of Navarre. Adolf of Holstein, the Prince of Piedmont, and Albert of Brandenburg. So all basically princes or kings and ruling their own kind of kingdom. But she is really focused on negotiations with France to recover custody of her son. And she doesn't really want to marry again because she's very focused on getting that relationship back with her son because obviously they're not even in the same country. But then in 1559, her father, who was Christian of Denmark and Norway, he passed away. And Dorothea, her sister, then makes a claim for the throne of Denmark and Norway. She's childless, she's a bit older, but Christina convinces her to drop this claim in favour of her son. And so Dorothea drops the claim in favour of Christina's son, but unfortunately nothing ever came of the claim, either to Dorothea, Christina or her son, probably because of that like rebellion. They're kind of an outcast family from Denmark and Norway at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Another thing that I thought was kind of cute, kind of random, is when she went to visit England, she went to the court of Mary I, where they were very welcomed, but she went with Margaret of Parma, and it's rumoured, I guess, that basically they planned to kidnap Princess Elizabeth and marry her to the Duke of Savoy. But this is slightly off topic, but I think it's one of the times that we see quite good relations between Mary and Elizabeth, because... Mary basically blocked them from allowing to even visit Elizabeth, who was basically, she basically just kept her in seclusion at Hatfield House. So she returned to the Netherlands without a kidnapped princess. A little bit of a side note, but I just think it's really interesting. No, it is. But she's also clearly a diplomat of sorts, one would argue. Not that kidnapping is very diplomatic, but you know what I mean. It's an idea. She ends up leaving for Italy in the late sort of 1570s beginning of 1580s sort of time and in 1590 she dies yeah um, she's in wait i was just gonna check yeah 1590 tortona. in 1590 she dies in tortona which, which is her little her little place in italy yeah. isn't because she got to keep that title from her first marriage for life i think it's kind of cute Full, little bit of a full circle moment that she, as Lady of Tortona, that that from a marriage from when she was 12, yeah. that that is kind of her resting place, I guess. I think that's really sweet because the kind of one place that's somewhat hers as well. And you don't see a lot of women having that in this time, any place that's theirs. And so, yeah, I kind of like it. 
obviously it wasn't great that like you know the ways that she got it but i think it's sweet enough it's interesting that we know the sort of exact date of her death because her birth was a bit more ambiguous with it being either late 1521 or early 1522. Yeah, which I just think is interesting, especially as she was uh, born as a member of a royal household as well. Mm-hmm. Like, she was born to quite an important place. And so I do think it's a bit interesting that her birth, that her date of birth is kind of vague. Yeah. Because we tend to have them with people who aren't born as high profile as she was. But yeah, I guess that's kind of everything on Chrissy. Tina. Cool. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed that episode. And we'll see you next week on Tudor Talk Time.